Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. Amen. Take your, take your Bible and uh, turn to the Gospel of Luke. I have an idea list that I work on, and actually it's a list, it's a file with a lot of lists in it, that as I pray and I try to be sensitive to the Spirit's leading in my own heart and life and sensitive to the needs of our church family, I, uh, I think ahead as to where we ought to go in our study of God's wonderful, wonderful Word. And if you could look back through my list, you would see numerous times I included the life of Christ, the life of Christ. If you look back through the list, it's kind of encouraging uh, to see uh, sometimes it's like planting a seed in the garden. It takes several years before it comes about and it germinates and, and produces flower. I had the book of Ecclesiastes on there forever. I didn't know if I could tackle that, that thing. Uh, you look back through 30 years, you'd be amazed, and, and then bit by bit, the Lord's, now it's the right time. And as I considered uh, the life of Christ, the Lord brought front and center in my whole thought of that, the Gospel of Luke. And I've entitled this morning's message, Luke, The Beloved Physician. And it's an introduction to the book, an introduction to the study and we'll begin in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. I one time had the privilege of sitting under, uh, more than once, but one time I remember Dr. Uh, John MacArthur. And uh, Dr. MacArthur is one of the great, great field generals of our day. His, uh, his radio broadcast, Hans, I know you listen to that almost daily, his books, his commentaries, his ministry, the school, the master's college and seminary, strategically used by God in our day. And he's getting up there in age. And I don't know if it was 10 years ago or what, but Faith and I had the privilege of being with him in person and listening to him uh, as he talked about a, an illness that uh, he, uh, he had. You see, he, uh, he's in good shape, keeps himself trim, but uh, he had a problem with his knee. So he had arthroscopic surgery on his knee, which... Very common, right? It's not an uncommon thing. And as he told the story about that, that he had the surgery, came home, and it was the next day, he said he was in such agony and pain, he told uh, his uh, wife as he lay on the floor of his foyer in his house, honey, I feel like I'm dying. I feel like I'm dying. So he called his physician and uh, they treated him with some antibiotics or whatever. <clears throat> and uh, in, in a matter of hours, or I don't remember all the details of the story, he didn't get better. So he, his wife called again and said, uh, he just feels like he's, his life is ebbing away. He's done. He's gone. He's a, he's a goner. And the doctor, by God's grace, said... Get him together and get him to the hospital ASAP. And when he went to the hospital, uh, they, uh, they checked him out, and sure enough, he was having a thrombosis. Evidently, a blood clot from that minor surgery in the knee, and I think you've had that, right, Mark? The knee surgery, not the thrombosis. Yeah. Uh, evidently, a blood clot uh, hit his lung, and... Um, or was in route or right there or something. And uh, they, they put him in a dark room. They treated him with however they treated him. And uh, the doctor told his wife, it's a matter of God's, it's a matter of ours now. We'll know whether he's going to live or die. I mean, it was like that. Well, the Lord brought him through that. And he did because he was able to tell us the story at that gathering. And... Uh, 
bit by bit. Uh, I mean, he was out of the pulpit for at least a couple of months, and then when he came back to preach, you know, he's a he's a 60-minute preacher, 58, 60 minutes. Doesn't think he can feed God's people very much if you don't open wide and feed deeply, you know, weekly. Um, the doctor said, you can go into the pulpit 15 minutes. That's it. That's it. He couldn't even golf, Larry. He, he forbade him from golfing. Well, bit by bit, uh, I mean, the doctor who treated him and, and God used to save his life didn't know him at all. He said, they tell me that you're a pastor. And uh, while he's recovering, and John said, uh, yeah, that's right, at Grace, at Grace Community Church, Sun Valley there, north of Los Angeles. Is that right? Well, if and when you get better, he said, I want to come and hear you preach. Well, it's probably months and months later now, John is feeling much stronger, and God had laid upon his heart the same as mine, years now later, a study of the Gospel of Luke, and he called the physician, and he said to him, look, you wanted me to let you know I'm going to begin uh, my study, and uh, I'm back, I'm full, full force, and I'd like to have you come as my guest. And lo and behold, the doctor showed up, the physician sat in the front row, and on that very first Sunday, uh, Dr. MacArthur preached the Gospel of Luke, the beloved physician, and if you don't know, that doctor put his saving faith in the Lord Jesus on that very day. And John's take on the whole thing was, God who does all things well and never makes a mistake, even though we can't even imagine, like a multi-level chessboard, what God is doing. It's the whole reason that God allowed him to have that coronary thrombosis and to go through all that that God might reach that physician with the gospel through John, who he didn't know at all on that first week, and he's a part of Grace Community there in Sun Valley today. Now that is an amazing story, but it is the gospel truth. Wow. Yeah, wow. Well, Luke, the beloved physician. Maybe, uh, maybe you'd like to, uh, to read uh, the gospel of Luke several times as we spend some time in here. But uh, that will only help take your notes and study them through the week. Um, you know, doubt, let's begin with the introduction. Doubt, that the other was preface, now the introduction. Uh, uh, doubt is a very dangerous thing, doubt. Doubt, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's precarious because a, a little by little, uh, it can uh, gnaw away at your soul and mind. Doubt is like that. Uh, the longer I'm reminded that you camp on your doubts, the more likely you will be to sink into despair and ultimately unbelief. That's why it's dangerous. It's like quicksand. It will swallow you up. And therefore, you, you, you've got to be very weary of it. Assurance and certainty is what, uh, what is needed. And so you and I must work through our doubts and be men and women of faith and absolute trust and bedrock trust in the Lord, trusting Him. Well, for most of us, and I say this in a generic sense, there are times when Christianity and our walk with Christ makes all the sense in the world. Isn't it true? It is. Really, don't you love Christmas? We sing about the wonder of the Incarnation and Easter, the high water day of the church, or the whole church calendar, the resurrection. He is not here, he's risen, just as he said. The hope that is ours, Peter says, it's a living hope because of Christ. We stand at the bier or the graves of our loved one and, and uh, we'll no longer see, uh, see them this side uh, of heaven. It is the reality and the assurance that is ours in Christ. And I say it makes all the sense in the world. Yet, yet, having said that, if we're honest, and I hope you are, there are other times when nagging questions enter our feeble minds. Even our greatest of minds are feeble. 
You know, we'd be smart if we could ever remember all that we ever learned, but it's uh, name, rank, and social security number on a good day, right? On a good day. Sometimes in our minds, our feeble, still yet sinful minds, our faith falters. There are times when nagging questions enter, and we entertain them, and we don't move in the right direction, and and shadows and clouds of doubt may hang over us. Now, I'm not saying we still don't believe in Jesus as Savior, for we do. We do. Good Christians, that is good because God is making us good, say, yes, I stand upon Him and Him alone. And yet, the bewilderment of life, have you noticed that life has some curveballs? There are some strange days in life. I take comfort in, like Ecclesiastes, when times are good, re- rejoice and have a party. Like last Sunday here, right? Rejoice. Have you noticed? Not all days are like that. When times are bad, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, therefore you cannot know anything about your future. I mean, life throws us curveballs. And when the hard times and the valleys come and the disappointment and the tears, and they come, sometimes doubt may linger deep in your heart and soul. You trust the Lord. You love Him. You're committed to Him. You're saved. But at the end of the day, you begin to wonder the whole story of salvation. Wow. Is it improbable? No, I believe it. I stand on it. Sometimes it just seems a little metaphysical or out there, sort of, you know? You know, we, we, we think, are, are my sins really forgiven? Are they? I'm such a rascal of a, whoa, I don't even like myself. <laughs> and if others really knew me, well, they wouldn't like me either. Has God really forgiven all of my sins? And you may doubt that. Or you may wonder at the end of life, is heaven really my home? I mean, when I breathe my last instantly, will I be beyond the pearly gate as we sing in the glorious place called heaven? Really? You know what I'm saying. At the end of the day, there are times, not always, but there are times and the like questions you may wonder about. Well, take heart. That is the reason that Dr. Luke wrote his gospel. He did. It's the longest book in all the New Testament. Did you know that? And in fact, let me, let me put the jot this down. I don't have it on your sheet, but he, it's the only gospel with a sequel. Did you know that? It is. What is it? Acts. That's right. It begins exactly the same. The gospel of Luke... And the Acts, uh, the book of Acts, if you put them together in the original Greek, they comprise just under 30% by volume of the whole New Testament. It's an enormous part. Most of us are familiar with some of the Gospels, and most of us are very familiar with Paul's writings, but Luke wrote far more by volume than uh, even the Apostle Paul. And so he writes in this, the longest book, the book with a sequel, um, he, writes, uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, he writes the most comprehensive of all four Gospels. And he writes an invest, as an investigator reporter, presenting, here it is, the Gospel of Certainty. It, uh, it counters the doubt, the shadows, the clouds, you and I can be absolutely certain of the historicity and accuracy of Jesus, of all who he was and all who he said. That's the reason he writes. He's going to tell us that right in the opening verses, and we'll read that in just a moment. Luke is the most comprehensive of, of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're called the Gospels, of course, uh, he is the longest. That doesn't mean he's most comprehensive because he's the longest. Some people are long-winded, have you noticed that, but don't have a lot to say. I'm not referring to politicians only. 
But it does happen that way. What did he just say in the last 20 minutes? Oh, Lord, forgive me for wasting that time. He didn't say anything. But uh, he, he writes. We learn a lot from Luke, right, in regards to his completeness. We learn the whole story of, of John the Baptist and his birth with, and that whole story. We learn uh, about the boyhood of Jesus. We would not have known that from Matthew and Mark and John alone. We learn what uh, Jesus taught on the road to Emmaus on that day of his resurrection. Oh, I would have loved it. was Luke that tells us in chapter 24 about uh, what he taught. He preached them Jesus from the Old Testament. It's Luke who tells us that. Luke, the, the beloved physician, uh, teaches us very, very much about the Lord that we would never know. Now, by way of uh, introduction and contrast, uh, God allowed by his direction four Gospels. And you should know uh, there's overlap, of course, because the events are the same. The Spirit of God using the background and personalities and education of four different men, controlling what they write to be holy scripture without error in the original. And yet each one has a little different purpose and when you put them together, it's like a beautiful kaleidoscope. Matthew wrote, Matthew was Jewish, you remember? He was the tax collector, despised, wonderfully saved, wealthy man. He writes to the Jews. And so it opens the New Testament. It was fulfilled. It was fulfilled. It was fulfilled. He's, he's tying the Old Testament, all the, the prophecy about this coming one Jesus, and he identifies him as Jesus is the fulfillment. And so Matthew writes to all of us, but primarily to the Jews, that he was the, the son of, of Abraham. He goes back in the genealogy to Father Abraham, that all Jews would be concerned about. Gentiles could care less about Father Abraham, unsaved ones that is, but not to the Jew. He is the father of their faith through Isaac. Remember that. Well, then Mark, Matthew Mark writes, this is John Mark, and uh, he writes as uh, not the king of the Jews like Matthew, but he is the servant of the Lord. Uh, um, Mark refers to Jesus as servant. That's why there's no genealogy in Mark. Who cares where a servant came from? We don't know your father or mother, and we don't even care to know your father and mother. But Mark, is a, he's the traveling companion of Peter. It's a considered oftentimes to be the gospel according to Peter because John Mark was not an apostle, was, but it was, in a, was a companion traveler with, with uh, Paul for a bit, but Peter primarily. And so it's the gospel through his eyes, through Peter's eyes. Uh, Mark is often considered to be the gospel for Americans. Because it reads like the USA Today. Do you like the USA Today? You say, I like the color. I like the pictures. I hate it. It's a dollar, though. It's a dollar every day. That's too much. And, uh, and you get all the graphs are pretty and all that. <clears throat> and, but the stories just to get you going, and then they stop. That's why I don't like it. I like to get some of the older papers that give you the full account, and you can just read and read, not just a little McDonald's snippet, you know? fast and quick, and there it is. And that's Mark. It's the gospel for uh, Americans because he's always rushing here and there, immediately, immediately, immediately. It's like Jesus is out of breath, immediately. Euthus in the Greek, he's running, he's running, he's running all the way through. That's Mark. Well, John writes much, much later, okay? He's 30 years after the others. Uh, he was the boy, the one that Jesus loved. He was the beloved one of the inner circle, and he writes around 90 now. Jesus died around 32. Now, many years later, John, the last living, he had been persecuted. He's suffering on the island of Patmos. And John writes the final gospel, the gospel of John. And he presents Jesus as, as God verily of God. He is, he is the Son of God. And uh, it begins as creator. He doesn't have any geology, uh, genealogy because God doesn't have a genealogy. He's always been. He was uh, the Word in the beginning with God. And all things were made by him, you see? You see the flavor of each one of these? So don't think, oh, they're all the same, you know? Why is it redundant? No. 
God is a God of multi-flavor and color, and there's, it's gold. God has given us gold in his word, if you and I will search it and know it. Well, Luke's gospel, now to stand in the midst of that four-volume set of the gospels, is itself, has much material that's similar, of course, because the events were similar. But he adds his color and breadth and comprehensiveness that uh, is unique to him, to, to his gospel. And we're going to study that and come to appreciate that as he, as an investigative reporter, writes, it's the gospel of certainty so that you might be sure and be delivered of those times of doubts or of doubts itself. Now, you should know the Westminster Confession of Faith, that great statement by the pastors of the early 1600s, put it this way, Faith is different in degrees, weak and strong, and may it be often and in many ways assailed and weakened. That is genuine saving faith and living faith. It, it, it is attacked. It can be weakened at points. And so don't be surprised by that. And uh, Riken wrote, to doubt does not mean that we're not Christians. It simply means that we're sinners who are struggling to live by faith. But God calls us to grow up in our faith. 2 Peter 1.10, make your calling and election sure. And so, Luke's gospel is for anyone who, what? Needs to know Jesus as their Savior. He's going to present, as the physician does in his accurate way, with pristine clarity and trustworthiness, Jesus Christ, man's only hope. It's also for those who have started to trust him, that they might grow to come to understand who is this one who was like no other that ever was. And finally, it's for those who have known him for a long time that we might come to know him even better. Well, there are three considerations of Luke's gospel of certainty chasing away any and all our doubts about Jesus. Luke writes, helping us as believers to gain a greater assurance of our faith in him. It is the gospel of knowing for sure. Take your Bible. Let's just read his opening prologue here. That's our text for this morning, chapter 1, verse 1, 2, 3, and 4. Luke writes, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed also good to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. Well, there it is. Luke uh, addresses it. It's the only gospel that's addressed to a person. He tells us why he did it. He tells us how he did his work. And that's what we're going to just unfold in the few minutes that remain by way of introduction to this Luke, the beloved physician, and his gospel. Well, the first consideration is that Luke wrote a historically accurate account of Jesus and his work. Verses 1 to 3, actually bits and pieces of the different verses. It's a historically accurate account of Jesus and his work. Luke tells us that he was, of course, not the only person to write of Jesus. We know that, of course, that he tells us that many, and that's the first word of the gospel, his account, many have undertaken we, we know of them, right? Matthew, Mark, and then John later. We know that uh, Mark knew of Mark, uh, that Luke knew, Dr. Luke knew of Mark's gospel for uh, uh, there are many similarities, and, and many think that, Luke, uh, that Mark's gospel was the first one that was written maybe in the late 40s A.D. Uh, we know also that uh, there were oral traditions that were handed down in fact, uh, you see that in the text where it tells us in verse 2, just as they were handed down to us. Notice that? That's a technical term. Uh, it, it, it means uh, uh, an authoritative, trustworthy, oral 
story was given. It was given by the apostles. Now, to be an apostle, you had to be commissioned by the Lord Jesus when he called the twelve. Remember, that was a commission. He called them, that they would be with him, that uh, he would send them. And that second requirement for an apostle uh, is that they had to see in bodily form the resurrected Jesus. Okay, so it was very, very limited uh, as to who actually saw the Lord, and then they were given the charge to go out through all the world, which they did. All of them died by martyrdom as they took the gospel through the whole known world of that day. They died of martyrdom, except John. We believe John died of old age there in Patmos. And Luke now is, uh, is privy to, uh, to hear the oral traditions that were passed down and to interview the apostles that were still living and to carefully make his notes and to question and to examine like a Ph.D. student working on the research, like an investigative graduate student, as to what's what in his thesis. That's what he's doing. And for a long period of time, as it were, he collected all of this material. He didn't just sit down on a log one day and start writing, oh, what is this? This is something? No. He writes as a very educated, sophisticated uh, man of letters of his day. He writes in the, the most classiest Greek that's found in the whole New Testament. It is. It's far different than the very simple uh, Greek of John, the fisherman. Uh, his is university Greek in both Luke and Acts. The only one that comes close is Hebrews, writes with a classy form of Greek. But Luke's writing, uh, he's exacting and purposeful. Well, the oral tradition, I remind you, I say, well, what's this oral tradition? We don't do that in our culture. But in some cultures where the literacy rate and the illiteracy rate, the people don't know how to read, is very, very high. Thank God that uh, most of us know how to read. What a great gift that is. Someone said you ought to thank a teacher if you can read. And that's probably right. And your parents made you read, right? In, in many cultures, many days, not too many decades ago, a small percentage of people could read. In Africa today, there are a lot of places they can't read. They pass on from generation to generation the, the family stories and the tribal stories. Sometimes you'll you read that uh, sometimes in the West with, a, with the Native Americans and the stories they pass on. Well, the apostles uh, would preach, and, and because many of them could not read or write, the story, tell me it again and again, and again, it would be cemented in their mind, and they would pass these things on as the early days when the New Testament was being written and then put together, and finally it's, it was completed. And so here's Luke. He's uh, interviewing apostles. You saw Christ. Tell me everything you saw. Uh, others of you uh, heard Jesus preach. I, he did his homework. He did his research. He was thorough to the nth degree. He left no stone unturned. We, in our media-saturated day, understand what a, an investigative reporter is. You, you get... Uh, you get your idea of a, of a story, you're like, uh, what is that? Or maybe that doesn't make sense, and I'm going to check everything I can, go everywhere and find out really, really what's the story here. That's Luke. That's what Luke does in investigating all of these things that others also did, but he did in a way by God's grace and leading that filled in a lot of details. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful, complete story, as complete as we can get uh, here this side of glory. Well, B, what Luke wrote, I remind you, was real history. It was a real history with real people. It wasn't fiction, and I, I tell you, he knew the difference. It wasn't sort of, you know, uh, surreal type, you know, this mystical Jesus and this fictitious, you know, if you read some of the, the phony, the, the books that were attempted to be added to the, to the scriptures, 
they, they possess a quality that is, when you read it, it, knowing the word, you read it like, what is that? It's, it's, it's as a fake as a $3 bill all the way through it. Some of you may have read one of these called the Sayings of Jesus. You read that of Jesus and his boyhood, and you go like, what is that? That's junk. That's totally fictitious. He's down at the uh, creek, and, he's, and the boys are taunting him, so he, he bends down in the clay, and he makes birds out of the, and they fly away, and, and I can't remember if they attack the boys, or you go like, this is junk, pure junk. It wasn't real. Uh, Luke wrote real history of real people, of real events. And he writes it so that you and I don't need to worry about doubt or be lost in it. Did it really happen, is it? So that we'll have certitude to these things. It is history. He wrote about all the things that were accomplished. Uh, he is careful to place Jesus, the story of Jesus in its historical context. I believe that uh, Luke was a Gentile. His name is Greek. It's a, Greek, a Grecian name. Uh, I don't think he's Jewish, the internal witness of the book. Why do I say that? Well, he's writing. He's a Gentile, and he's writing for the world. He is, not just like Matthew to the Jews, and to us by secondary application, but he's writing to the world. How do I know that? Look at the internal witness of the book. He writes of places in Israel, and he explains where they are. It'd be like saying, uh, me writing a letter to you and saying, uh, I'll meet you on Market Street in Harrisburg. Oh, incidentally, that's the capital of Pennsylvania, and uh, it's near, it also has, um, what, Second Street, where all the restaurants, and you go like, what, is Pastor crazy? We know that. Why is he writing that? You see, he would never do that. And, but he, unless you're writing the people that don't know the land of Israel, like the Gentiles didn't, the people of the world, right? So he's writing that way. Also, he uses dates that uh, he dates to the Roman empire, emperors. You know, in the Christmas story, uh, when you read the account in, in Luke 2.2, 2, Quirinius, we always look at that and wonder, how do you pronounce that? He was governor of Syria at the time of the census that was required that took Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. He writes of the Roman Caesars and of the Roman governors. That's what you would do if you were a Gentile, a Greek in that day, not Jewish. And finally, he traces the genealogy of Jesus not back to the Jewish Abraham, the beginning of that seed, right? He goes all the way back in this genealogy to Adam. That, uh, that is uh, for all of us, all of men and women everywhere. It's the gospel for all mankind is the way he writes. And so he writes in its historical context. He desired simply to record what really happened, what really was said, and he went to great pains to make sure he got it right. Now, you should know that in the 1800s, it's always been Satan's, one of his chief things to do in attacking the church is to attack the Word of God. You see it back in the Garden of Eden, right? God told Adam, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, 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 and the, what happened, right? There's Eve standing in front of the tree, right, one day. Satan appears, speaks through a serpent. And what did he say? Did God really say? Now, that was an attack against the revelation of God. God had said it, and Satan begins. We're introduced to him right there, attacking the Word of God. And it's been that way through the centuries. And in the 1800s, there was a ruthless attack, and Luke was in the forefront. They attacked Luke. Liberal so-called theologians that occupy university chairs, filled many pulpits, um, and so on, attacked the historicity of Luke. Said it was fictitious. He wrote of dates and places and things that never happened. Never, never, never happened. But let's just believe it anyways. You know, this kind of thing. Idiots, really. Not me. Not me. Let me say it here. If, if you can prove one of these things didn't happen, I'll never come back here. 
I'll sell insurance, I'll paint houses, I'll swim in the Susquehanna, I'll do something else. Can you swim in the Susquehanna? I don't know if you can. <laughs> if there's, I mean, it, it's not fictitious. It's, it, it's, and God has kept his word. And so you can take it to the bank. And so they attacked it without mercy. And they like, oh, we all know he's wrong. There's no Quirinius anywhere. There's no, there's no Pilate. There's none of these things. And bit by bit, God raised up archaeology. You know, that's a rather new science, you know, where they dig down in the ground. Now, it's really embarrassing when you dig down in the ground in certain digs and you pull a pottery that have different governors' names on it, like Pilate. We saw that at Caesarea. Remember that? For years they said there's never any man named Pilate who said, let him be crucified, right? That's very embarrassing when you're highly educated to pull out a lot of, uh, of things that are in pottery and in monuments, like Pilate there at Caesarea Philippi. It stands right up there. And it's embarrassment to you. Oh, oops, oops, oops. You know, you never want to say oops when you're <laughs> medically. Oops. You know, but I guess you can still do it in places, and they attack the Word of God. And it's almost as if every shovelful that they, under, they turned over and the artifacts that they found supported Dr. Luke in every single instance. Some of you are, are familiar maybe with Sir William Ramsey, the great archaeologist of 1900. I've seen some of his displays at the University of Pennsylvania in their museum, archaeology museum. He wrote, he wrote this, Luke was an historian of the first rank. And he was. Listen, uh, again, I'll say it in three. If Luke didn't get his facts uh, history right, we could never, never trust his word about the virgin birth. You see, it all hangs and falls together. It's not a surreal, fictitious history. There wasn't a historical Jesus as he unfolds if he didn't really live and teach, if he didn't really, wasn't really nailed to the cross for our sins, if he wasn't buried, and if the resurrection never happened, if the ascension, then hit the lights, stay home. Don't give another penny, please. Vest it in the market. It'll probably be gone anyway. Just, just don't, right? It hangs together. Your Bible, have you noticed? Your whole Bible's like that. If, if cosmology and creation didn't happen as God said, just forget it. The whole thing collapses. It's not trustworthy. There's a walk around in unbelief, say, well, we just hope the hope and let's talk. Let's talk faith talk and all this nonsense. You read some of the stuff, you're like, what in the world are they talking about? Not me, not you. And if that's the case, and it, if it isn't, then throw your Bible out. Don't ever open it again. Don't come back here because I won't be here. Now here's the truth. It is reliable. It is trustworthy. It all hangs together, and it does. And it's beautiful. The closer you look at what God has done, the more amazed you will be. I'm saying to that. I've said it how many times? The closer you look to what God has done, whether it's in creation or in His Word, the more amazed you will be. Our entire salvation depends and the things that Jesus accomplished in, in real history, space-time events, specifically through his suffering and through his death. The result of this, here it is, is that we have a rational basis for our faith in Jesus Christ. You know, it's completely rational to receive Christ the Lord as your Savior. Sometimes you hear people say, well, you take a leap into the dark, and you just, you don't know what's out there, and it's just like, that's crazy talk, okay? That's crazy talk. Luke is presenting in his gospel of certainty the absolute uh, rationality of our faith in this living Savior because there was at one day a rock that was rolled away from an empty tomb, and it really happened. And we stand 20 centuries later based upon the foundation of that factual event. That's what Luke is saying to us. This idea of, well, science is reason and faith is irrational uh, never existed in the mind of God. Never. 
God never does irrational, non-rational things. It's all with reason, and it really happened. It did. And that's Luke's concern, and it ought to be for us. Well, he wrote an accurate account of Jesus and his work. Second consideration, Luke carefully researched his sources in writing his gospel. Look what he says in verse 3. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated, there he is in the libraries and out on a street interviewing, I've investigated everything. Well, that's quite a word. From the beginning, that's the beginning of Jesus' life here on earth, and even before, it seemed good to me to write it. Well, Luke tells that he investigated everything. He writes, as I said, as a very educated person, yet he was not an eyewitness. He was not an apostle, yet he was part of the part-time traveling uh, companion of the Apostle Paul. How do we know that? Well, when you read the second volume of his work, which is called what? Acts. There are parts of it, though he never identifies himself by name in either of his two books. He says, we did this, and we, as the writer, did that. Referring to Paul and he. He was uh, the part-time traveling companion on the missionary journeys of Paul. And so we see that, and we know through Paul's writings who was traveling with him. You can check. I think I have it down. No, I don't. Acts 20, verse 6, is one of those. Uh, Luke writes in Acts, Acts 26, but we, Paul and I, we sailed from Philippi. It's one of the we. It's, it shouts to us as an internal witness that Luke was traveling with Paul. In Colossians 4.14, that letter, Paul calls Luke uh, the beloved physician. I use that for the title of the message. As a doctor, medically trained, Luke observes details that we might suspect that only a doctor might observe. And we'll notice some of the physical observations that Dr. Luke makes of the virgin birth and things that are not mentioned in the other account or, or, or accounts. Things that, to a trained eye and physician, uh, such a miraculous event would occupy his attention, as rightfully so. God put all his personality together, all his training. God never said, Luke, I didn't know you were going to be a doctor. Come over here. Would you write that? No, God built all that, his training, his family, his life experiences. And now under the Spirit of God, he's going to work through that to produce this gospel of certainty the gospel of knowing for sure, the gospel for the world, in fact. And it's wonderful. Some characteristics of Luke's gospel. Did you know that women play a very large role in Luke's gospel? You don't see it in Matthew and Mark, you don't. But you learn that in addition to the apostles that traveled during their travels with Jesus, also were accompanied by a group of women. And they were wealthy women. Women that attended to, his, uh, to their physical needs and otherwise, and there are other places. Luke makes much of the role of women. In the day, that day, where women were despised and considered really low class, Luke has no problem with that. Of course, Jesus has no problem with that. Men and women are all made in God's image. We have different roles and functions to play, that's all. Did you know children have a special concern in in his gospel, and the poor as well, more so than the others. Luke has a real concern for the poor and in the meeting of their needs and concerns, and we'll see that as well as we look through the flavor of his gospel. Well, well, how did Luke do his research? Quickly now, he, I've already said, he interviewed those who had firsthand knowledge, and its uh, tradition tells us that, that Mary lived a long time, the mother of Jesus, and and lived with John, and uh, he interviewed Mary to find out the details of, uh, of her conception, the miraculous conception uh, of, of, ba of the babe, and then the, all the uh, events leading up to his, his birth. Uh, also that Elizabeth, John the Baptist, 
Uh, his mother was a part of that group, tradition tells him, and he, and he begins, we'll see that, with John and Elizabeth was barren and couldn't uh, bear a child until later, and, and God uh, provided uh, a baby we know as John the Baptist for, and, and, and got that from, from in inter, interviewing these ladies and others. He collected their accounts and others, desiring to know everything. Here it is. He desired to know everything that could possibly be known about the Lord Jesus Christ. That was his drive. And shouldn't it be ours? Shouldn't it really? Some of you are good at uh, football stats. Did Penn State win yesterday? Yeah, nobody cares. It was Temple, right? Is that right? Nobody watched? <laughs> right? All right, there you go. Stuart, did you watch that? <laughs> All right, some of you are great at <laughs> At stats, right? My brother used to rattle out all sorts of batting averages and uh, winning of games and all that. And we know all that kind of stuff. And we give ourselves to it or Sports Illustrated or all sorts of things, right? Things that are mm, almost worthless, right? In the, in the long stretch, right? Are they? The fact that Mickey Mantle hit so many, uh, really. Penn State, well, the Bills won four big ones. <laughs> No, they didn't win the big ones. They almost, they were four times there. That, that, meaningless. Next to what? Knowing everything there is to know about Jesus. And that was Luke's drive, you see? And it should be ours as well. It should be yours. Shouldn't, well, pastor said it. That's good enough for me. No, you ought to take the word and check it out. Uh, right? Be a Berean. Acts 17. I love that. Come up to me and point your Bible and say, you didn't quite get it right, I don't think, Pastor. I love to hear that. I'd correct me with a word. You don't believe in pastoral authority like papal authority that I speak ex-cathedral here, right? Without error? See, I can't fool you. You all know that. That's not true. <laughs> but it's the Word of God. And that we should desire to know everything about Jesus. The Apostle Paul would brief him on his travels as well. Well, the result, and see... Luke's research is a rich account of the person and work of Jesus. It gives strength to our assurance of our faith. The Holy Spirit superintended the whole thing. Well, he carefully researched. Not only was it, is it a historically accurate account, it's not funny numbers and funny places and pretend things or events, none of that. It was real. If you were there, you could smell the salt air. You could smell the flowers in the field. You could, you could see it all. You could smell the leopards and their stench and, and the spices that they wrapped his body in. And the, you could hear the agony on the cross and the weeping. and the you, you, it, it was real history. But more than that, he did his research with due diligence. And finally, the third and last observation, he logically arranged or organized the gospel, his gospel presenting Jesus Christ as Savior of the world. He organized his material very carefully. Now, the theme of the whole book is 1910, telling us that Jesus as Savior was on a search and rescue mission. Not search and destroy. Our military does that at times, don't they? They're called to do that, search and destroy. No, his was a search and rescue. It's like that pilot that was uh, uh, shot down. Remember that? In Eastern Europe that time, he was a Christian guy, Boy Scout, survived. That was amazing. And uh, they searched. Uh, after he was out there, got word, and they found him and got him out of there. Uh, Luke tells us that to seek and to save that which was lost. That's the theme of his book. Uh, a, this, is the only, this, this gospel is the only gospel that is addressed to the single person, Theophilus. His, his name means uh, lover of God. Uh, there's the debate, is it, uh, is it figurative for the, all those that trust Christ and are saved for the church? Uh, or is it to a real person? Now, I, I believe it's to a real person. Uh, I think primarily it's to all, uh, to him, but then then to the whole church, 
in a secondary sense. Why do I say that? Well, he used the word, O excellent Theophilus. And that's the, that's the proper way that you would address a Roman official in that day. We see Paul addressing uh, during his arrest uh, and the, the various uh, tr- uh, court cases he had in the end of a- a- uh, Acts, the book, he would address the Roman governors in the same way. Excellent. Excellent one. It would be like uh, if we had uh, uh, the governor here, we, it would be proper for us to uh, forget about your political persuasion, forget that, okay? But he occupies a position, and so we would call him the honorable governor, right? That's proper. Or a judge would be called your honor or honorable. And so Luke writes, O excellent Theophilus. And so he's addressing a person. I believe this, uh, this, uh, this man is, uh, is a new believer, He's uh, growing in his faith, and he needed certitude, uh, delivering him from maybe some of the, the shadows of doubt over, really, who was Jesus more completely, and what did he do, and what did he say, and, and so he addresses him. He, uh, incidentally, he begins Acts the same way, uh, referring to Theophilus. Uh, this is what Jesus began to do, and then the volume two Acts is what Jesus continues to do through his apostles and through his church. That's the book of Acts. That's his writing. All right, so in a secondary sense, because all Scripture is applicable, it applies to us, and so on. Well, he outlines the book in four movements, and we'll unfold this in the days ahead, unfolding the life and work of Jesus. He, Jesus begins his public ministry and. You can read that section, his birth, his growth, his baptism, temptation. And he's ready then at the end, launching into his ministry. And that's number two. He seeks the lost through teaching and preaching. His miracles revealing his identity, who he is. He's the Son of Man. And that's Luke's uh, uh, epitaph of Jesus. He's the Son of Man. It comes from Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Referring to the Messiah, the promised one. Incidentally, that's Jesus' favorite name for himself. It is the Son of Man. Seeing that I am the Son of Man, he refers to himself that way more than any other title written in the Scriptures. The third uh, movement, uh, Jesus begins his journey to Jerusalem. And might I say, it's the greatest, most important journey in the history of the world. Now that's quite a statement. It's the most important journey in the history of the world. The text says he now sets his face toward Jerusalem. And he begins to make the journey that will lead him up into the city as he enters on what we know as Palm Sunday. I say it's the greatest journey in the history of the world, notwithstanding. It wasn't Columbus. He sailed the ocean blue and... 1492, or however that poem goes, remember? It wasn't Apollo 13. We got to bring them back from that journey to the moon that didn't, uh, remember that? Great movie, though, huh? Uh, But that wasn't the greatest journey ever. It wasn't any of these. It was this journey. Because it would be the journey that would accomplish, once he reached Jerusalem, the greatest work ever done. And that's the last movement. And in that, that final week, he provides salvation for the world in his death and resurrection. Doesn't mean all the world is saved. Doesn't mean that. We do not believe in universalism. We'd love all people everywhere to be saved, but they're not. I will not have him. God is calling out a people. He is man's only hope. It's not Mohammed. He's dead and gone. It's not Confucius. It's not Hinduism. It's not any of that nonsense. Is Jesus Christ alone. He is the Savior of the world. He is man's only hope. It's only He. And it ends there gloriously with His resurrection. Well, see, this is what we need, don't we? We, we need a sure and a certain knowledge of Jesus and the salvation that comes only through faith in Him. That's what you and I need. We need this because often... Aren't we like the man of Mark 9, 24 in talking to Jesus? Did you read that? 
Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Right? Sometimes it's like that for us. This is part of our struggle as fallen sinners living in a fallen world. Lord, I believe. I hate that I'd have any shadow of doubt. Help my unbelief. And I'll grow strong and stable and firm, knowing Christ and his work and his words. Well, what can we say by way of lessons for our life? Lost my glasses again. Number, number one, beware of doubt. Beware of it. Beware of it. It will, it, will, it will snag you from time to time. It's dangerous. Don't stay in the land of doubt. You never stand still in it. You're moving one direction or the other. Move on to full assurance, trusting only in the Lord. So don't stay there. Don't hang around there. I've talked with folks for the years. It's dangerous. You'll go far afield in the wrong direction. And the days of life are so short. You turn around and say, how did I get here? I'm lost. I'm far away. Be, beware of doubt. It's dangerous. Number two, know that faith in, in, in Jesus is built upon a solid historical fact. It is a firm foundation because he is the foundation and the cornerstone. It's built upon it. There was a real cross and a real death and a real virgin birth born son. And there was a real empty tomb. And there I'll never forget standing on the Mount of Olives. Some of you have stood there. Maybe we'll go back there next year. Maybe there'll be enough interest for that. And I remember looking up and imagining what... The disciples must have thought, and the crowd, to see Jesus go up, even without a jetpack. See them flying around Vet Stadium, the old Vet. That, that was, I'd like to try one of those. Without that, it really happened. It really happened. It's not surreal. It's not a wake up and was I dreaming? It really happened. It's historical fact that your faith is built on. Someone say, why, why are you a Christian? Why do you wait? Because one day in Jerusalem, there was an empty tomb. That's why I believe, and so should you. And it makes all the difference between heaven and hell. A really, a real empty tomb. Number three, each of us, like Luke, should want to know everything there is to know about Jesus. Maybe we ought to stop reading all the other stuff and watching all the other stuff. It's okay in its place, as long as it's not sinful. And say, you know, I, I, my years are getting on. I, I, should make, I should be like Luke. I ought to study everything I can possibly study to know about Jesus. I mean, he's the only one that makes all the difference. It's not the Buffalo Bills. It's not the Yankees. Not the Orioles. It's not Penn State. It's not LSU. It's not, oh, the Steelers. <laughs> I didn't mean to laugh at that. It's not, it's not that. It isn't. We ought to give ourselves to knowing all that we can know about Jesus. It means that we're going to be reading the Word of God and things that help us understand it. There's nothing more important in all life. Number four, are you too a Theophilus? Are you? Are you a lover of God? If you are, this is for you. Let me urge you to love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, and your strength. You can be a Theophilus too. I love the Lord. That's the great thing, isn't it? That's what God calls us to. To love Him, and to live for Him, and serve Him all the days of our life. And finally today, let me urge you, if you've never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're lost. You need to be saved today. And you can in an instant. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. You have to confess that. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for dying for me. Oh, come to Christ. Don't let the day pass. Luke, the beloved physician. What a story Dr. MacArthur tells. Thinking, God had me go through all of that. Coronary thrombosis. Almost died. 
Couldn't play golf anymore for a good long time. Doctor forbade him. Couldn't preach. And then lo and behold, he'd be first time fully back in the pulpit, physicians in the front row, never been in church. I think that's what he said. He was never, here's the gospel and God saves him. The gospel of Luke, the beloved physician. May we love our Lord more and more as we engage in our journey of studying this. Mm-hmm.